So enough of me with the commercials. And of course, back to the Got lovely bills. bills. Got pay those bills. We're back. Pay bills. That's right. Right. Damn right. So before I get to the next question, of course, because we everybody wants to know how come do you look beautiful every day? Even when you're Because <laughs> there was a she looks gorgeous. I'm in love. I'm watching the things come in. I'm like, we know she's on, she's coming on TV today. So she's gonna be very dolled. And I've been on tour with her. She always looks fabulous. <laughs> Thank but you, Lenny. You know, you know that. I've always told you that. But um everyone's saying, does she always get this dolled up every day? It's like <laughs> I'll let you answer that. Listen, you know, I, I'm from old, I'm an old school kind of artist. Like I'm from I'm from that world of, you know, like the Motown kind of kind of world of discipline, you know. And um, I know I have a certain level of expectation for the artists that I that I love and revere and respect. Um, and, you know, I, I always want to put my best foot forward because I represent something very important. And that is you know, black womanhood, like, you know, our culture and I represent women. I represent black women. Um, you know, I'm a mother, I'm a business person, I'm an artist. And when I come to the table, you know, I, I come with zero games. I come to actually like represent what I believe in. And for me, you know, putting my best foot forward and under, you know, most circumstances is is how I live. That's how I feel good about what I do. And there were a lot of times, like when we talk about the pandemic, there were days like, you know, you just be in soccer mom mode, you know, forever. And you didn't wear heels or, you know, you were in sweatpants every day or something like that. But there were days I would just, you know, throw my decent clothes on and do my hair and put my makeup on and, and feel fabulous. And, you know, not going anywhere to do anything, but it's sometimes it's just about like feeling good about, being in your skin and so you know that it's it's important to me okay thank you for clarifying that the pick me upper so now we actually you're signed you now are with the basement boys that your production team and production mm -hmm. so take us from there because we, we got to get to that point when right. so that was that you know that all started in 1989 and then you know the album came yeah. out in 91 <laughs> 89 darling yeah. it's fine i got receipts honey i've got receipts and i you know there's no shame in my game for any of thing, the things that i've that i've done and accomplished i'm absolutely proud to have made an album in 1989 um, is a very big proud thing absolutely and to still be doing it you know now 10 albums later that i'm working on my 10th and still releasing music and still traveling around the world and, and still, you know, a viable part of the, the music community. Absolutely, I'll take it 110%. So I put out uh, Blue Notes from the Basement with the Basement Boys um, in 91. And, you know, that was the first foray really into like making an album. And that was, that came again, um, as, the, as the, the trail of things started to unfold, the initial deal was for two, uh, two singles. Um, but once I started writing for the album, well, what was supposed to be the backup, the follow-up single to It's Over Now. And I also um, wrote a song to pitch for a diva because at the time they were putting out a diva's new album. It's when I first time I went to England and I landed at the airport in Heathrow and there were a diva posters all over the marquee. It was very eye-opening that I was no longer in Kansas. This was major label, mainstream world that I was now dealing with in, in this place. Um, being in the UK and being signed to a UK label, it was no longer an underground story. And so, you know, I needed to, to meet that place and, and really like, you know, redirect my way of thinking. So I started writing these songs. I pitched one for the boys and I did one for a diva's album. The label really liked it. It wasn't chosen for the album, but what it did do was show them the diversity in the scope of my writing ability and singing ability, because I sang it in a completely different style. It was definitely more R and B pop, uh, dance than underground, you know, you know, four, four, underground basement kind of sound to it. And so they were like, hmm, wait a minute, you know, we've got a thing going on here. It turned into an album deal. It turned into a two album deal. And so then we did One Woman's Insanity after we finished with the, all the singles from It's Over, from it's Over Now, Rejoicing, um, Scandal, all of those, the ones you mentioned that you love. And then we did One Woman's Insanity and released three singles from that one. 
that what happened with one woman's insanity was Cherry, Cynthia, my A&R person, decided she wanted to come back to the U.S. So they picked up the whole eternal label, moved it to the U.S. company. And then I was controlled, basically. My product was controlled by the U.S. company instead of the U.K. company. And I think that was really pretty much where the downfall of things happened because now I was in the hands of a group of people who did not know, understand, or care for dance music, underground dance music especially. And they really didn't understand our loyalty as an as a group, as an entity, the Basement Boys and I, to our underground community. And that the next record that we did, we wanted it to, we understandably needed to suit their purposes for it to be radio friendly and commercially viable. But we also needed to marry it with the underground as to not alienate our our fan base. Right. And so we cared about that, but they didn't. And so we produced One Woman's Insanity as an album, had some success on the underground level and moderately on the commercial level, but it wasn't enough for major label land for this, this country that didn't really get it. They didn't know what demographic you sell this to. It was very specific. And it wasn't like with the UK company on radio, you would hear It's Over Now or Rejoicing Next to Michael Jackson here you're not going to get that so it was it was a different kind of energy and a different thing and so that deal ended in probably like 94 and then i left basement voice because i felt like it was time for me to grow further um you know as a writer and as a producer and working with other producers and other kinds of writers so that i would be able to grow as an artist because i didn't want to get stuck in one lane and then that lane no longer become viable as you saw how the music evolved and changed once the majors got involved oh. they changed the game <laughs> that's a very sweet way of putting it yeah it is very diplomatic <laughs> you know? let, me, let me break it down in definition they acted all up they took a beautiful thing that we were all doing and threw their money up in it and it wrecked it right away. It didn't take that long. And that's the question I'm going to ask you before you go further. Mm. So that you can explain because a lot of UK people are watching right now. Mm -hmm. The difference of the love of our soulful dance music posed to the American side. How different that is. How we made this music here. Mm -hmm. A small community, but yet those records will go over there and become overground and pop records. People well, that's like happened with a lot of genres of that come from the black community um, and from you know underground marginalized communities. It's always appreciated in those underground smaller communities, but on a larger scale, you know, it's not appreciated that way. I mean, look at jazz and blues and and all of those things, and and then internationally, it's appreciated a lot more. Um, the attitude towards the the dance music. Uh, genre, especially at that point in time when it was coming from, you have to look at the history of where this came from. And in that, in that time uh, that I came into being was, was a few years after the disco movement, that whole political campaign happened against disco here in the U.S. to make disco is dead because it had been saturated, but also people need to remember that disco was one of the most expensive genres of music to make. And it also made the most money. And so a lot of people from the rock world were not feeling that. And they also didn't like politically, the labels didn't like the fact that the underground DJs in the clubs were controlling what was happening in the charts. Uh, they could dictate what was happening right. in, in the charts and what people would go and buy. They went and bought what they heard at the clubs. And so the DJs had all the power. Um, so there was a whole political backlash and conspiracy that happened to get rid of disco and to, to, to obliterate it here. And so that happened with the whole, you know, park situation and burning the, the disco records and all of that. And so same time, here comes technology enabling younger, newer, you know, uh, producers and writers who didn't have access to that kind of money, capital, whatever, to produce oh, records with. Hang on, wait a minute. We didn't have two nickels to rub together in those days. <laughs> We're working on air. Right, right. So you remember when technology came into play, it so became cheaper and easier to produce 
yes. underground dance records from IE Disco. But instead of it being a 13 piece orchestra on the song, oh it God. was, you know, done with a four track and with tape and reels and things like that. And, and it was cheaper to make. And so you had this derivative of disco that became house. That's right. Daughter of Disco. Wanted to be disco. So the Real U.S. Life. still has had that backlash as far as its attitude and its its attachment or respect for this genre. It's always been seen as a bastard child in the in the music game here. Yeah, anyway, says it's so right. Listen to it, the bastard child. How many times? And what did Frankie Knuckles tell us all? Disco's revenge is house music. Exactly. Exactly. So that didn't happen in the UK and abroad. That attitude never happened. That love for disco never died. And as it evolved with technology and became house and this in, in other subgenres, that backlash was not there. So that's why you had the taste and the appetite and the platform for this genre of music that you didn't have here in the US. So you go ahead, you keep on going, bring us up to speed, because we need to hear that platinum record, how that all <laughs> Well, you know, once once I was dropped, I mean, literally and figuratively, you know, it's like, you know, at that point, I, re I evaluated like about six years of my life had gone by, six or seven. Um, and I still felt good about things because I had accomplished something that, you know, was phenomenal. And I had lived this amazing fairy tale and I had like these works that are now tangible things that came from thoughts in my head and just ideas and concepts that I made into like a thing. And so that was gratifying for me, but I was at a crossroads to decide if I wanted to continue in that lane or if I wanted to go back on my original path of pursuing medicine because I wasn't so far gone yet. And, and I knew there was still years and years of school to do. And so I still had the opportunity to do that. My manager, Bill, and I had decided at that point, we had many conversations about it. And we decided at that point that we're going to continue. We are going to proceed like we've always proceeded with the intention of what our ultimate goal is going to be. And then we work backwards from there. And so we start putting the chips in place to reach what is our ultimate goal. So I started working with other collaborators and producers, you know, going back and forth to New York to work with Al Mack, work with, you know, Move to Swing, Lemon John, and, 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 and Bill, my manager, brought them into the equation. He thought they would be really great uh, co-writers for me to work with and producers, and they were. You know, our, our synergy was just, like, amazing, like, magical from the onset. Um, the influence, you know, again, for, for my growth as an artist and as a writer um, was was amazing. I learned some really amazing things working with them as a, a real band that's also a production team. Um, that experience was was immeasurable because, you know, the boys and I, like, we were just kind of winging things and shooting from the hip as club kids. But now I was at a level where I was considered, you know, a viable artist and musician. And so there were still tools that I needed to learn besides just my instinct. There were technical things that I also needed to learn and understand so that I could make my instincts sharper, if that makes sense. So um, I have to ask you this question. When you mentioned about going back to school to be in medicine, what was the thought process of what part of medicine would you have finished out to go into. You want to be a doctor? I was going to be a doctor, yes. I knew it. I can hear it. Specifically in neurology, I was my interest. This is like totally crazy, right? Going, the way you're explaining everything, it sounds exactly like someone who would be working towards being a doctor. Yeah, that was my thing. It's, my thing. it's still my thing. I'm like, my friends call me street apothecary because I'm always like... Yeah, the girls... Because <laughs> yeah. I would have witch stuff. She opened up her box and she's got everything. <laughs> yeah, it's very bad. You don't even want to see my cabinets. And they're like, I got a pain. I got an issue. I'm like, you just need a little bit of this, that, the other thing, the third. Yeah, we uncover this because I keep hearing about medicine. I'm going, yeah, it's just my thing. I don't know. Oh, I like helping people. It's, it's always just kind of been, it's always been my thing. So, you know, I, I ended up still being able to do it, but through music in, in that way. So, so but anyway, we, um, we started writing with these various producers and writers, no deal in place. Um, and then Strictly Rhythm was bumping. It was doing its thing. It was killing it in New York. It was the seminal label of New York. Um, it was the sound of house at that moment, you know, what they were doing in, in terms of New York representation. 
and um, they had amazing brand recognition globally. They had successful records commercially, which means that they had capital. And um, those were two really important aspects for me to consider. I definitely knew I didn't want to go for another major label deal. Bill and I were very clear about that because the music was changing and evolving. The labels were changing and evolving and it was getting real tricky in that particular area. So we knew, you know, if we were going to do an, an indie label, we weren't going to go to an indie that had no no money because, you know, I had been on a major for two albums and I had set a precedent and um, a certain level of expectation for myself and for the consumer. And we didn't want to go backwards. That was that was pointless. So Strictly Rhythm seemed to be and was like the perfect combination of the two. We always refer to it as like a mini major because they had the capital and they had the brand recognition. And they also had the ability to build a record very quickly on the street level, in the club level, get every get things to the DJs immediately. Gladys Pizarro, you know, wanted to sign a record with me. She, you know, courted me to like sign a record with her for like a year. Um, I got to give it to her. You know, she had that stay in power, that stick to itiveness. She was like, we going to do a record. I'm here and I'm not letting go until you work with us. So it was like, all right, cool. You know, we went in, we had meetings with Gladys, with Mark, you know, uh, Finkelstein who owned the label. And, um, you know, he seemed to be a very stand-up guy, in integrity, you know, 100, actually paying people on the records, you know, that were sold. And, and you know, because a lot of times when you do record deals, you never see your royalties. A lot of artists can tell you that. They never see their royalties. Um, and he, you know, had really prided himself on, you know, paying his royal, paying royalties out to people. And that kept, you know, people coming through his doors to work with him. So I was like, okay, there's a lot of reputation going on here. There's a lot of brand building going on here and infrastructure in place to get a record from the underground with the DJs, then pass it off on a major and let them build it, you know, on a commercial level. And so we did, this, we signed a deal to do free. Um, well, we signed a deal first to do two 12 inches and whatever that was, you know, two 12 inch singles and whatever that was going to be. And then they just let me get on with it. And um, again, conversations, Bill and I, you know, we're like, you know, always right here with each other in terms of what I'm doing. Hang on, hang on. Before you get the deal signed, how does that record happen with the guitar, that rock feel and what whose idea was all that in the studio with that track? behind the scenes. Well, once the deal was done and Bill and I sat down and really decided like what we were going to do, he, he bought moved to swing to the table to be the producers of whatever it was going to do, whatever it was going to be. And Bill and I, you know, we knew because Bill, Bill and I, we listened to a lot of different kinds of music. And so we're influenced by a lot of different things. And in our conversations, we just kind of decided like, we don't need to do a lot of more of the same. There's all, there's plenty of same sameness going on. You know, the, the music business, especially the dance music industry gets very, very homogenized when something is successful then everybody kind of does the same thing because suddenly like that's the sound and that's working so like let's all do the same thing and you know i've never really been interested in that i've always kind of gone left of center and and more adverse to like what everybody else is doing so we really tuned into like going for a rock feel with intention and so it's like you know we really need to do like this guitar thing um and we set out to like come through with something. So my point of reference when talking to Lemon John after Bill and I kind of got our general plan together with this rocky interest that we were going to do, I gave them um, Losing My Religion by R.E.M. as my point of reference musically. So they were kind of understanding here where, where in what context I was thinking of. And so they took that idea and then went in and, and developed this guitar line. Wow. done by played by Woody Pack at the time. And so that was the first piece that we had of the song. And then we just started writing from there with, you know, Lem coming up with this element, me coming up with that element, you know, much the way it's, it had always been done. Like everybody kind of contributing together. Um, Lem, you know, once we had that guitar laid down and some, and some drums and some few, some bits and some framework, you know, Lem was like, we just need to, like, it just needs to, like, scream something, like, free or something. And we were all like, yes, that's, that's the plan, you know? And then we just kind of evolved it from there. And once we had the chorus idea of, like, what the main hook was going to be, then I spent more time, like, dealing with the specifics of 
the verses and the bridge and, and things like that and constructing like the story around it. And then, so that's how we built free. And then we turned it into strictly and we're like, here you go. Like, hopefully the world likes it. <laughs> you're sitting there waiting to hear back from Gladys. Right. You know, because they, had, you know, they, I mean, she didn't need to micromanage me. You know, I came from, from a major and having done two records, two albums already, you know, they were mainly a singles uh, kind of label, just churning out really great singles from these various producers. So what I brought to the label was a whole different thing than what they had been doing. So no one really needed to micromanage us. We kind of were really self-contained. Um, and they let us get it on, kind of get on with it. Like, here's the checkbook, the studios downstairs, just like do what you do. And we went in and we wrote, you know, a whole album. We wrote Situation Critical as an album and we spent a fortune to do it. And <laughs> unfortunately, you know, Mark never put the brakes on it because, you know, at the end of the day, everybody won. And so that was great because, the you know, the, the single went crazy. The back, the follow up found a cure went crazy. And, you know, you know, people focus more so on free, but Found a Cure was almost as equally successful globally. Um, and then this, the subsequent album, Situation Critical, you know, did its thing and went huge. And simultaneously, the If You Could Read My Mind with Miramax with the film 54 happened um, at the same time. And that was, again, not by my design. That was Miramax, you know, had... Tommy Boy Records doing the soundtrack. And so Tommy Boy wanted to, along with the classic songs from the 54 era, they wanted to do something new kind of in a way. So they came up with the idea of the Gordon Lightfoot song, If You Could Read My Mind, Reimagined, and you and utilizing their artists, Amber and Jocelyn Enriquez, and asked if, you know, if I could, you know, appear on it as well. And we formed this super group. And so that everybody was like, yeah, this is a great idea. Let's do it. So we recorded, if you could read my mind, they turned it into Miramax and then Miramax loved it. And we're like, suddenly we hear, oh, they're rewriting the ending of the movie and you guys are the ending. There's the, the climactic, you know, Steve Rubell comes back to the club and the stars on 54, you three will be there performing, you know, in the ending scene and we're like what and then you know it's like all these things were happening and and we had no control or idea that it was even going to lead to that you know it becoming like the theme song of the movie we just thought we were doing a song to add to the soundtrack and then it ends up the theme song of the movie and then we end up actually in the movie and now it's become its own classic you know anthem so there were a lot of amazing things happening at that time so it becomes like a xanadu moment for you like, it was pretty Xanadu. It was pretty crazy. You know, I was touring really, really heavy, um, it, you know, and, and I don't regret anything about it. I had a wonderful time. I wrote the next album, Stranger Than Fiction, um, which, you know, gave you Twisted and, you know, which is a big fave for a lot of people and Desire and um, and some really great tracks off that also that are, that are club faves. The difficulty in that moment was that was right at the moment, if you remember, in the early 2000s when the music business went belly up and the apocalypse hit because the internet and file sharing completely obliterated the business. And so it shifted the whole paradigm. LimeWire, everybody can get your music free. Yeah, it shifted like everything. And And labels were dropping like flies, you know, or being, you know, merged into other labels. And you just didn't know where you were going to land because it was really shifting sand in that moment. And so I was on, um, in the UK, I was on a major, I was on A&M. Um, but then the shift happened and I ended up on Universal because A&M was <laughs> acquired and I, it ended up coming out on Universal, but it was a bit crazy with you know a and r shifting around and the thing about a and r is this is a little inside tip for people who want to be in the music business is that a lot of times with majors if the people that are handling your product are not the people that signed you a lot of times they just don't care um because it just doesn't reflect on them as something that they helped create and so the stranger than fiction album although we had a moderate success with it it was kind of caught in the minutiae of this crazy political moment where it was shifted to Universal and put in the hands of people who had absolutely nothing to do with the creation of that record. And so it suffered its own issues of what was going on in the music business universally. So, you know, 
We, we do what we do and we, we make the best of it. Here's the, here's the greatest part of it. So she said Universal picks up A&M. Before that happened, because I was also on FFR and those big labels, mm-hmm. Seagram's, who you guys drink the alcohol, decided, the son of Seagram's decided he wanted to get into the music industry and he bought the labels. I remember that, yeah. You remember Ultra? We were like, I remember that, yeah. Now we got the owner who has no idea about music. He wants to be in the music industry. Mm-hmm. He wants to come and make a mess over here. But he it was did. already messy. It was already messy. So like, yeah, let's just add to the mess. Yeah, we're all like, now what? We're like, yeah. What I remember that with Seagram's and I'm like, what does this have to do with? Wait, what's Seagram's uh, wine? Yeah, it was. It was a hot mess in the music industry right then. But, you know, when it was over and the chips were falling and there was, you know, everyone was just kind of, you know, disheveled and, um, you know, just trying to pick up the pieces. At that moment, Bill and I decided it made no sense to go on with a label outside of ourselves because, you know, I had been told I was on the wrong side of 25 at that point. Um, I had been told that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to get a deal. Um, again, after that. So I was just like, you know what? That's fine. I'll do it myself. It's and so we became, we became our own companies. And you're on the other side of 25. The wrong side. Darling. Yeah, but you're on the right side, darling. You're on the wrong side of 25. I was on the wrong side of 25. So you yeah. saw your good years. That's basically they were trying to say. Like, you already saw your good times. They, mm-hmm. And I love that about our business. You know, I love when they say stuff like that. It, it kind of makes you laugh a little bit because how many times we've proven everyone wrong? You know, I, I, I get it from a major label standpoint, you know, and where the music business was at that time and what it is. You know, I have a, I, I've always had a, a clear understanding that, it ain't personal, you know. Them signing me, it ain't personal. No. Them dropping me, it ain't personal. It's about a product. When you're in the music business, you are a product. And it is about your art for you, but understand for them, you are something to be sold. You're like Procter and Gamble. You're like Brillo. You're like exactly. Dawn Soap. Exactly. But it's also a matter of like it's a it's a matter of opinion, and, and everybody's got one. So you know what is not working for you under your circumstances doesn't mean it's not going to work for someone else. The great thing about it at that point, I was already four albums in. I had been you know a global artist for a long time. I have fans around the world, and I had classic hits. I had um, you know I wasn't just making money from my live performances. You know, so I was able to do something that other artists, some other artists are not able to do. And that was become my own company and become my own business and finance my own project and continue making albums. And and that's what I did. So, you know, it was, it was very important at that time to also have ownership of my masters um, because those four albums I don't own, but everything I've written since then on my own, that I've put out on my own, I own those masters. So the Grime, Silk and Thunder album that came after Stranger Than Fiction, no, it commercially, it wasn't as big as those albums because it didn't have the big record company budgets behind it. But the lion's share of what it did do is mine. And I own those masters for hero worship and black stereo faith and you know all the works that I've done since then. And so the important part is that you continue building and where, where you're kicked down and, and the game changes, you have to be nimble and be able to pivot and be able to, you know, find a way like water. That's me. I'm going to find a way to get through it. And so I own those works. And I always believe with the, with the music business, it's like in any minute something happens. Like it's, it's not a, it's not a stagnant kind of thing. It's a, it's like a moving target at all times. And so at any moment you can create a work that suddenly opens up another door and then another door. It's sort of like Alice in Wonderland, you know, going down the rabbit hole and then suddenly you're opening another door and you're in a whole place that you didn't even see 15 minutes ago, just by one small moment that you create. And so that's why it's always important to look forward, to keep your eye on the horizon, like I said earlier. <laughs> Definitely. I, I, but I get it. I, I understand how you might, you know, you're analytical. You're not going into this without really looking at it from the, all sides. I, I can tell. You're not the one that says, you know what, I don't want to look at that contract. 
You, oh, no, no, that's definitely not me. No, <laughs> no, I'm just letting people know that, you know, you've clarified that just in your explanations of how well read you are and how much research you do and everything you look into. So I'm not surprised for you to say that you were going to start your own company and become the CEO and take those risks. But what's involved with the transition? Because remember, you were also courted with some of the best companies. Not like you were, mm-hmm. you know, it wasn't with like you were Tom, Joe, and Mo. You were with Warner. You were with A&M. You were with Strictly for, for a better part of that period. And I can say the same. We were all blessed to have that machine behind us because it helped really catapult what we were doing. You know, now you got to basically reset the wheel for yourself. With you absolutely pedigree. Mm-hmm. But you have a lot of pedigree behind you. No one yes. can get away from you. But now here's the difference. You're sitting in the position where you have to call the shots and not be afraid and stand behind what you believe in. Mm-hmm. Because when you have to put money up, and everybody knows that, you got to put your money where your mouth is. Mm-hmm. How do you do that transition without fear of, you know, failing? You know, how do you? Well, you know, you always, you have to be willing to fail up. That's how I've always approached it. I've failed a million times. Find that failing up. <laughs> but it's always about failing up. Find that failing up because for some people they'll do the failure and they'll walk away. Where's that? That's where you're missing. That's where you're missing it. Um, it, you know, it is, this is not for the faint of heart. What I do, what this business is, it is not for the faint of heart. And, and though I may, may make it look like a charmed experience, there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and hard work that go on behind the scenes. I mean, I literally could work 24 hours a day, seven days a week on, the music business. Um, it requires a lot of discipline. It requires a lot of focus because you are your, you are the artist. You are the, the, the manager, the business person, the, this, the, that you wear so many hats in so many different ways. Fortunately for me, I've always been surrounded by a really great support team, starting with my management, obviously, of course. And, you know, I've worked with so many great producers and songwriters. I've had so many great people in the record company positions and in the promotions positions and the publicity positions that have championed me. And I've learned a lot of things from a lot of people. And that's those are the tools that you take when you go to step out on that board by yourself to do it. And it doesn't guarantee that there's, that it's going to work. There's, there are no guarantees, but as long as you know that, that you at least come into the game with resources and tools from the years of experience and still having a support team behind you that are rooting for you, that are also sacrificing to make it work. Um, That's all you've got. And then you have to just, you have to believe in what you're doing. You have to believe that this is meant for you. And, and, you know, you have your moments of doubt, but ultimately you have to know, understand, and believe that this is what is meant for you. And I've had confirmation of that over and over and over again throughout my career that I'm on the right path because there there are difficult moments when I question everything and something will come and happen and confirm for me again that I'm on the right path. Um, I feel constantly that God has always looked out for me. The way that my career has evolved, there's no way that I have done it by any means on my own. It was definitely because God had, God was in my corner and because the universal spirits were, were rooting for me. And there's always been a general uh, feeling of goodwill towards me as an artist globally um, because I've always been a- about putting out, you know, what I felt was really good quality music. Um, Even if it's in the dance music genre, it should still speak to people. It should still be something that, that fortifies people. It's, it's a way and a mean of communicating with people and to, um, to build that spirit of community between us. And so I've always valued the people that listen to my music. I've always valued um, the experience that I have, and I've always been qu- a kind of a quiet observer of my own career. And, um, you know, that, that's just how I approach it. Like every day I'm, I'm looking forward to what the next thing that I'm, that's going on. And I, and I, I try to give it all 110%, even, you know, with the creation of deep sugar as a party here in Baltimore, and then expanding it, 
you know, to That's travel globally, um, taking on DJing and, and adding that aspect to, you know, my life and career as well from an artistic perspective. Um, that was, you know, that was something that was a bit of a gamble. There were people who from the outset um, didn't believe in me as, you know, as a DJ that I was to interpret that way. Yeah, of course. I want to ask you this question. This is an important question. Did you, those that know, inside, did you always DJ or did this happen later from a club kid perspective back from 80s? <laughs> no, I mean, I think, I you know, I, I, other than just playing, you know, playing my mother's vinyl, um, I, I never attempted to like program music for people in that way. But as a club kid, you know, growing up hearing uh, so many amazing DJs between Baltimore and New York and, and other places and then abroad, ultimately, when I started traveling, you know, I, I learned just again in the same way that I learned how to sing and, and how to write songs. I just absorbed what was happening around me and let my brain work out the technical part, you know, in that thing. But I think at the forefront, it's about not being afraid to fail again, failing up. So when I stepped in front of a turntable, because at the time, you know, we were, we were playing vinyl when we first started, there was the risk there of people judging me much more sternly than other people just on the basis of who I was um, and automatically downplaying me because I was an artist, you know, a known artist and feeling like, oh, well, I'm just gonna be willing to get away with, with that just because of who I am or because I'm a woman. Um, and that was never my intention because that wouldn't represent the, the, the art that I came from and the scene that I came from. So I feel like every time I step to the plate, I'm representing the scene that I grew up on. And those players who, basically were, you know, where my tutelage was, you know, in listening to all of these really amazing DJs over the years, it would be, you know, it would be such a disservice to them for me to step up to the plate and do anything less. So that was always my intention, but you can't sell that to people. And I didn't bother trying because people are going to make their own judgments, but in the end, they'll find out on their own. And that's always the best way. So I just let the music do the talking and I gave myself license to make mistakes. And as long as you give yourself that license to make mistakes and learn, you know, basically trial by fire, because, you know, Lisa and I, we basically learned while we were playing in front of people. And so we had a lot of shoes in the dryer moments and we were okay about it because we knew we were going through a process and it was fine. And, you know, I always salute the people here in Baltimore that helped build sugar as it started out as and um, evolved into deep sugar when we went to the paradox. But, you know, we learned on their ears, but that was the best way for us to learn was in front of a crowd, jumping in at the deep end and really feeling that pressure of like, this has to be right. And you are in this moment and you need to understand how to keep this dance floor in this moment and in this space and not lose it not lose them, how to program your music, you know, how to get from one record to the other. Like you hear it in your head, you know where you want to go. You know, I really want to play this song. I really want to play that song. But how do you get there and make that make sense and feel good? And as a club kid who was a, who was always on the floor dancing, I knew what felt good to me from the dance floor perspective. And so I just kind of reverse engineered, <laughs> you know what I mean? What I would hear as a kid on the dance floor. If that makes yeah, sense. So, but women have great taste in music. I've always said that. Absolutely. Women have listened to lyric more than the guys do. You know, it was always so I'm not surprised. I've heard you play and I enjoy what I listen to. You play very well. Thank you. I mean, I still make mistakes, but that, you know, that's part of the process. You know, I, I, I don't even I don't even care. I'm like, you know, I mean, it's never my intention to play messy or whatever. But if I'm in a messy moment, you know, there may be something technical going on, like maybe I can't hear in the space that I'm in or something with the equipment is not working right for me. Or maybe it was just, you know, a little stupid mistake or, or whatever. Like I, I could be tired. Maybe I just, you know, flew in from somewhere and my body is just out of it. And I just lost it in that moment. But I, I like I said, I try not to to give myself so much pressure and be okay about making a mistake. And I think that your audience comes to know and understand that, that 
that human aspect of you, because perfection, in my opinion, can be really boring and really set you up for like, you know, too much pressure, too much stress, too much expectation to the point of, you know, you can't even meet it. And that's not fair as an artist. And, and as an artist, I think it's important to be able to make those mistakes. So when I play, I feel like I'm okay to be on the edge of like disaster or greatness. I mean, that's what life is about. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Listen, you know what? This game has gotten so funny now. And I'm saying this. You know, it's more about, you know, the name of the person sometimes and what they can bring than the actual talent. You know, in your case, you have talent. You come from, again, once again, you have the pedigree behind you. Those that revere and, and love what you do, we know that. You know, it's not like we're not shocked. And it's okay if you make mistakes. We all do. Exactly. Everyone does. I mean, you know, I remember Frankie clearly saying, you know, it's about the music selection. It's about taking people on a journey. You know, the technical part, yeah, that's important. And it'll come and it has its moments and it has its place. But it's really about, you know, the what people walk away from at by the end of the night, the story that has made them feel something that night that makes it magical. That's more important than like, oh, this record didn't quite get into that record, you know, as smoothly as we would have liked. You know what I mean? But you just, you know, you can't focus on like that's that's the, that's small picture stuff. I, I'd like to focus on big picture things like, you know, what's overall the people in this room, you know, what message are they are they getting? Like what am I conveying to them as an artist in this particular medium of a DJing at this moment? Okay, now DJ, now that you're taking us on that trip, mm -hmm. you project, as I noticed, I can tell that you you live by the secret. So you project what you want. I know I can hear it in your just the way you are. You put it out there and you say it's coming. Where are we projecting? Mm -hmm. Where are we projecting now? Projecting? Oh my gosh, there's so many things going on right now behind the scenes. I can't even, you know, there's things happening that I can't really say at the moment because, you know, in the music business, you don't want to jinx it until it, it, there's a saying that we've always right. had it. It ain't happening until it's happening. But what is happening is I do have a new single coming out um, in two weeks, actually, on July uh, 16th, Friday, July 16th. I have a new single coming out called Supernatural, and it's on Skint, actually, which is Fat Boy Slim's label, also backed by BMG. So I guess it's on a major. Look at that. <laughs> Here we go. Who said I was on the wrong side at 25? <laughs> I keep laughing about that every time you say it. And you don't even look like you're on the bad side. You look beautiful. You still look beautiful. That's the bad side, the wrong side. <laughs> I'm on the wrong side of 25. You know what? And you're going to be, there's going to be more 25s because the longer we keep going, we're all defying this, this age thing. You know, we, I always keep saying the music keeps us youthful and young. Oh, absolutely. And let me absolutely. tell you something. So it's a very exciting time because I'm, you know, I uh, wrote Supernatural with um, a duo of brothers out of the UK, some uh, new young kids that are like just getting their chops up with production and, and jumping out there and putting out some really cool, interesting music. And the song was sent to me by one of my longtime collaborators, Kwame Kwatson from The Influence, actually. And um, through uh, The Influence's tenure, which they had amazing records and, you know, have their own legacy as a band, Kwame specifically went into management um, at a certain point and was very successful in breaking new artists. And so since then, he has formed his own talent company called Ferocious Talent. So he works with a lot of new um, new kids, talent-wise, that are writers, producers, and um, singers. So he sent me this track from, you know, the, he's been working with these new kids in the UK at this school, and he was like, I really think you would like this, you know, check it out, see what you think. And I liked it. It really reminded me of, like, the early 90s sound of house when it was like still stripped down and it was like really jazzy and funky like what we were doing you know as with basement boys in the in the earlier days before you know the the bigger labels came in and everything had to be so like commercialized and and you know sounding out of the can as you know the technology developed and the outboard gear started getting the same sounds and everybody started sounding alike um, you know, using real instruments, there's, you know, great flutes and, and bass and things like that that really appealed to me. So I wrote this song one afternoon. 
just to, you know, give it a go to see what I came up with to their track. It, and I, it's called Supernatural. I sent it back to them. They loved it. And then the next thing I know, they have a deal on a major. And so that goes back to what I'm saying with the, with the record business. You just never know. You, magic is around every corner as long as you just keep pushing through, keep moving forward and just keep being creative. You never know where it would land. I never imagined in that moment when he sent me this track on a lark that it would end up being signed on a major label and and coming out in two weeks. All right. God bless. And I know we're going to be seeing you playing out and we know you're going to be traveling more. Oh, absolutely. My schedule is uh, getting a little crazy now and I'm just kind of waiting. Um, I'm still in a bit of a holding pattern because I had a lot of gigs in the UK scheduled. And obviously with the UK not opening up, on the 21st of June, as was scheduled, that pushed everything back. So there's still gigs that are like, we're just waiting to see if it's gonna actually happen on this new date, July 17th, I believe is the new date. And if so, there, you know, a lot of those, those gigs are gonna come together. But um, there's a few things that are already uh, confirmed. Like I will be, I'll be doing market days in Chicago on August 8th with myself, Angelica Ross of Pose and American Horror Story fame. Um, and Mila Jam, we have a song out called Fierce. And um, so those we just shot the video for that. We just shot the video two weeks ago. Chicago gig, is that the singing gig and DJing? Or is it, which one is it? The singing, it's it's singing gig. It's a full, full out show. Um, my own set, uh, each one of us doing our own set individually. And then we'll be doing, actually premiering. It's called Fierce, Pop, Fierce Project featuring Alternate Angelica Ross and Mila Jam. And it will be uh, premiered at Market Day Chicago on Sunday, August 8th. It's a whole weekend um, of events and they have, you know, a lot of really great artists. A lot of my sisters, Cece will be there and I will be there some at some point throughout the week. And I think she's on Friday or Saturday, something like that. Um, but I'm on, I'm on Sunday, me and the girls. And um, yeah, so if anybody's in the Chicago area, that weekend of August 8th, I will be at Market Days. So come and join me. And I'll be doing, oh, and also I'll be doing Miami Pride. That's also confirmed. Miami Beach Pride um, for Friday, September 11th. And this is a DJ only set I'll be doing um, for a, a brand called Sweet Spot. And we're doing a rooftop somewhere in Miami Beach for that. So it's, it'll be on my on my page. So just follow my socials and get the details as they come out. Okay. All right. I'm going to ask you for one last thing before I let you go. Since mm -hmm. Dr. Ultra, can you, <laughs> us, can you give us a prescription to someone who's starting out? You know, because I know you get asked, we all get asked these questions, you know, what kind of advice can you give someone who's just starting out vocalist that, you know, is inspired by you? Mm -hmm. uh, what would you recommend? You know? Um, well, unfortunately, it's not a one size fits all kind of situation with the music business. It's very specific to the individual. But I would say to make use of the tools that are readily available to you that cost you nothing, which is obviously your social networking uh, situation. You can create a profile on yourself um, through these platforms that we once did not have. Um, and it was solely on the record labels to be able to build an audience for you. And so you start to create your own power when you build your own audience. I would say be prepared to invest in yourself. Um, the concept of A&R, which is, you know, artisan repertoire, those kind of things like the A&R aspect is not as prevalent these days. And a lot of labels are not willing to pay for it um, as they once did. So the development process is not happening for a lot of artists, young artists, that are just coming into the business at this point. So it's kind of on you to learn as much as you can about what is expected of you as an artist to maybe have, you know, a cool production team. I would highly recommend an entertainment specific lawyer and accountant um, because that's going to be the, the make it or break it. Because if anything happens, if nothing happens with anything you put out, then it doesn't matter. But if something happens with it, it all matters. And you don't want to look back and reflect like, wow, if I just had like the right attorney look at this, it would be completely changing my life right now. So that's a really big issue. It's, you can find an, a proper entertainment attorney and accountant and you don't have to, you know, 
pay a lot of money at the moment. You like when you have some things that might come together and you need them, then you pull them in. But you definitely need to be working with people that know the business because entertainment law and accounting is completely different than conventional. Oh, yes. Industries. Yeah. Night, night. And when I say this night and day, night and day, night and day. And also learn the business. I think there's a big advantage because there's so much information out there now that was not easily available to artists years ago through the Internet. You can Google and look at tutorials on YouTube of everything these days. If you just ask the right questions and you need to be asking as many questions as possible, you need to be reading up all the information on business, on the deals what the deals are these days and what does that mean for you? Because there are things like 360 deals that that labels want to do now where they want a piece of your publishing if you're a songwriter and a piece of your live performance uh, uh, gig economy if you you know perform live. And that's something these are these are newer thing, newer concepts because the revenue stream has shrunk. So now labels are looking to share in other areas where they didn't before. And you need to know what that means. If you're going to go into a 360 deal with someone, you need to know for sure that they're able to bring in that income for you. And they're not just, you know, kind of riding piggybacking off of income you would have been making generating on your own. And that's correct, because most of the time and she'll back me up on this is that they sign you. And next thing you know, you're doing all the legwork. <laughs> and but she you need to know like what that legwork should be, you know, no. depending on the type of de- type of deal. Sure, you're doing all the legwork. The regular no, all of it. I mean, I have a great management team. Uh, my my management team is oh, all, great you know, Bill and Angelo and Michelle and everyone that works with me. And then I have you know people that are that directly work with me in my camp. Um, that work behind the scenes that just kind of help keep the drain on the track. Cause you know, it's just impossible for one person to do it all. Um, and having, you know, people that actually are down for you in your corner, it's really important that your support system be correct. Cause I definitely would not have made it without the support systems. That's right. That's right. 